There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to a special Irish Examiner podcast to mark Bloody Sunday. Next Saturday, November 21st, is the 100th anniversary of one of the darkest days in Irish history, a day on which 31 people died in Dublin. I'm Larry Ryan and joining me today is Paul Rouse, Professor in Modern Irish History at UCD, who's going to take us through the events of that day. Paul, you're very welcome. You might start by giving anyone unfamiliar with the story a brief overview of Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday, the 21st of November 1920, was a day like no other in in the Irish War of Independence. Indeed, there is no day quite like it in modern Irish history. More than 30 people died in Dublin on this one day. And as I suppose we'll see, that they can be divided into three basic parts. The first part was the morning when the IRA launched coordinated attacks on the lodgings of suspected British intelligence officers. And as we will see, 14 men were murdered in those attacks, though not all of them turned out to be spies. It was a gruesome series of killings, a kind of a brutal turn in an increasingly bloody war of independence. The second event on the day was the indiscriminate murder shooting of civilians at a football match at the GAA's Croke Park headquarters by members of the British Army and the police. This shooting led to what is essentially the murder of 14 innocent men, women and children who were at that match, either uh, playing it in the case of Michael Hogan or attending it in the case of the spectators. And the third event that happened on Bloody Sunday happened late in the night in Dublin Castle, the seat of British rule in Ireland since the beginning of the 13th century. Here, three men were being held under arrest. Two of them were leading IRA men in the city of Dublin and the third was an innocent civilian. And they were, it, it was alleged they were tortured. That's whatever there is to dispute over that. What isn't disputable is they were shot, then summarily executed essentially by those who held them. And that in short is the is the overview of what happened on, on, on Bloody Sunday. Okay, Paul, we, we might start, I suppose, with what happened on in the morning. So the short answer to what happened in the morning is that Uh, Around 9am on the Sunday morning, the 21st of November, up to 100 IRA men led by the squad, uh, kind of a, a, we'll talk about them in a second, but they were basically a special IRA unit, which Michael Collins had established in 1919 to combat the G division of the Dublin Metropolitan Police. That G division had been made up of men whose role was basically involved gathering intelligence against those who were described as enemies of the Crown. So the, the, the squad... And the Dublin Brigade targeted basically 19 men at eight locations around Dublin on that Sunday morning. And over the hour that followed, 14 of those men were shot dead and others were injured. So one of the squad, William Stapleton, described 
what happened when they arrived to where Captain W.F. Newbury, one of their key targets, lived at 92 Lower Baggett Street on the morning of Bloody Sunday. When they broke in to Captain Newbury's flat, Stapleton and the men who were with him found Newbury in his pyjamas and trying to escape out a window when they saw him coming. Now, Newbury was shot seven times and ended up hanging from the windowsill. His wife uh, had thrown herself in front of her husband in order to protect him. And according to Stapleton, Mrs. Newbury was in a terrified and hysterical condition. Within 15 minutes, her husband was dead. She covered him in a blanket. And as the Trinity College historian Anne Dolan has written, Mrs. Newbury was haunted by the sound of shooting for the rest of her life of gunmen laughing by the memory of a man washing her husband's blood off his hands in, in her own sink. But it should be said that not all of those who were killed were spies. Instead, they were also a mixture of court martial officials, of staff officers and of ordinary police recruits. This has been documented by the historian Jane Leonard. And among the, the number of those kind of ordinary rank and file of the security services was John Joseph Fitzgerald, who was a recent police recruit. He came from what was described in testimony as a well-known Tipperary GA uh, family. Indeed, his father had been either club patron or club chairman. That's not entirely clear down in Kappa White. Um, also among the dead were two civilians. One of them was a landlord and the second one was a man called Patrick McCormack um, who was on his way to emigrate to Egypt. He was a kind of a, a horse lover from, from, from the west of Ireland. Nonetheless, the story passed into the mythology of the Irish Revolution that all 14 men who died had been British spies successfully yeah. eliminated by Michael Collins and his men. Yeah, as you say, these stories are probably less told um, over the years. How in general... Do the families of those civilians killed uh, feel about how Bloody Sunday is remembered? Well, we have very little testimony from the families. You saw, though, in the documentary, that the brilliant documentary that was put out on, on yeah. actually last Monday night, uh, the family of John Joseph Fitzgerald essentially left the country after it happened and appear almost, uh, never or almost never to have returned. And, and the impact on that family was very visible in the testimony of the, the, the grandson who gave uh, the interview um, to, to the thing. But we don't really know about that. We've actually more knowledge about the impact on those who did the killing on the morning than those who were actually right, dead, which, yeah. is, which is interesting in itself. Um, and I mentioned Dan Dolan earlier, the Trinity historian, and her article, Killing on Bloody Sunday, looks at how that morning impacted on the lives of those who actually did the shooting. Now, it's really interesting for some, they went about the rest of the day almost as normal. Like uh, there's a brilliant thing. I was talking to uh, a really interesting man, John Keaton Clamell, who's gave me information on, if you look at the picture that was taken from Croke Park on Bloody Sunday of the Tipperary team, framing that picture, there's a load of men behind them. And amongst those men are Paddy Kelly, Tom Ennis and Charlie Dalton, who were involved in the squad on that morning. So they went on to the match, as did others go on to the match in Crow Park, who were involved in, in the killing that day. But others were utterly, tra utterly traumatised. Like these were, these were not trained gunmen. These were, in certain, these were people who were inexperienced in some cases. It was essentially their first major outing with a gun and their first time to kill anybody. And yeah. they were traumatised by it. So Mark Duncan, another historian, has recorded, say, for example, the example of James Norton, who said that he himself was personally responsible for the killing of three of the intelligence officers. Um, or the shooting of them. Three, two of them died and one was seriously injured. And he did that shooting in the presence of the wives and children of those men. And after Bloody Sunday, 
Norton said that there had been a general deterioration or there was a general deterioration in his mental condition until he had a complete breakdown in July 1921. Basically, he couldn't cope, Larry, with what he had done. And he ultimately spent much of the rest of his life in Grange Garment Psychiatric Hospital dealing with the fallout from that morning. And I think the words of Anne Dolan in this are are really good. She says, killing a spy may have been an order or a duty in war, but there was much to reconcile when all you saw was a man in his pyjamas clinging to his wife. Yeah. Um, okay, look, that, so that was the start of the bloodshed. Um, what then happened in the afternoon? Obviously, it centred, of course, around a challenge match between the, the, the Dublin footballers and Tipperary. Yeah, serious challenge match. on a fo- In a footballing sense alone, both, both teams were... Uh, they were in the top three or four teams in the country. Both had legitimate aspirations to win the All-Ireland Championship. And indeed, when that year's All-Ireland Championship was duly played a couple of years later on, they were the teams that met in that All-Ireland in that All-Ireland uh, final. But the match was intended as a fundraiser, essentially, for, 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 for the Republican movement. So the exact precise usage of the money from it is is unclear, but that's what, that's what it was. Um, and... What matters, I think, about about the morning is that the killings in the morning were only the start of things. And that the football match that was planned between Dublin and Tipperary was, I think it's one of the most notorious events in, in, in modern Irish history. Yeah. What is somewhat incongruous about the whole thing is that Croke Park in the early afternoon uh, of Sunday, the 21st of November, it didn't feel like a city at war. It didn't feel like a, a, a place where 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 there would be an atrocity just a couple of hours later. In fact, it was almost as if the killings of the morning had never taken place when you were around Croke Park in the hours before the game. A Dublin Intermediate Football Championship final replay between the Neary Commercials and Aaron's Hope was being played out. That It was kind of a grey, damp day. And elsewhere in the ground, a meeting of GA administrators was taking place. So this was the normal stuff of a sporting organisation in, in, in full flow. Do we know what kind of crowd... Tur- what was, what was the total crowd on the day, Paul? Depending, well, like, I mean, you know, you know from your own job, Larry, the way newspapers yeah. can tend to <laughs> exaggerate or, or, yeah, yeah. or call things wrong, but it's somewhere between five and 15,000 people are said right. to be in the ground. It was a kind of a commonplace thing to exaggerate the number of people who attended a match, all the better to lend significance to the occasion. So it's not, it's not clear exactly yeah, how many, sure. uh, how many did this. But what's interesting, I think, is that even though there was a lot of normality around it, there were kind of harbingers of there was there was a bit of trouble mm. on the on the way. Uh, officers of the Dublin Brigade of the IRA came to Crow Park and advised and just said, "Look, this this match should be called off." They'd heard whispers of a raid on Crow Park by by British um, officers, by British forces, and indeed an order was issued by Dublin Castle that Crow Park should be surrounded, and that when fifteen minutes left in the in uh, in the game or the game was when the game was due to expire, uh, expire. All who were in the ground should be ordered to hold their place and to file out through the exit, and there should be a stop and search thing, and that anybody who tried to run should be shot. So that order was given already that morning, and obviously whispers of this had come, or whispers of some sort of a raid had come to the Dublin Brigade. But the, the GA officials were determined to go ahead with the game. They they considered that cancelling the fish, fixture would kind of suggest that the GA was somehow implicated in the actions of the morning. And there was also the fear that with a large crowd already inside, a cancellation would lead to panic and there'd be a rush, in the ga- rush to the gates and there'd be create even more danger and mayhem in the place. So the styles were yeah. opened. 
as George would put in place, the ticket sellers were at work all the ground. And as I say, at least 5,000 people were in the ground when the ball was thrown in at quarter past three. Now, the ball was meant to be thrown in, and this really matters, as we'll see later on. The ball was meant to be thrown in at quarter to two. So the match was delayed, but it didn't start at quarter past three. Yeah. Um, now, central to the organisation of the match was Jack Shouldest, um, an IRA man who previously won an All-Ireland Football Championship with Dublin, and he was also a leading GA official. He recalled what happened then after the game started. He said... The game had only started when trouble began. An aeroplane, which was rare at the time, flew over the grounds and returned, apparently to report or go some signal to the black and tans and the auxiliaries. We had not long to wait, for the game was not in progress more than 15 minutes when lorries of the Raiders swooped down on the grounds and without any warning, burst their way to the railings surrounding the playing pitch and opened fire on the people on the far side of the ground. I think that's what's so, I suppose, inexplicable to people um, from the day. Is how, how is it that British forces could be firing on the crowd? Like what, what possible justification would it be for firing on the crowd at a football match? Um, I suppose we'll start with that last thing. There can be no possible justification for what happened. It was evidence of callousness of cruelty of kind of an absolute disregard for the lives of the mere Irish it was about a disregard for empire or disregard for you know the country in which it was in and it's kind of like the ultimate indictment of empire when it comes down to it and and the utter um even possibly justification was probably the wrong word Paul there I mean what possible reasoning even yeah it's the explanation it's where you go look for an explanation as to what they were doing or what they were trying to do what were they trying to achieve what were they trying to achieve and how then did what they were trying to achieve morph into the slaughter of 14 people and um so so let's step back to what happened in the morning Uh, in the minutes and the hours after the morning assassinations were carried out there was kind of shock and revulsion manifest across the officials who ran the British state and across the security force, the military and the police. And the desire to be seen to respond and to be seen to act immediately was paramount. Like it was this, we can't have these gunmen doing what they wish in the city. Is, 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 is. They knew this football match was taking place and they took the view that the match was being used as cover for IRA men to pass in and out of Dublin. And you must remember, Tipperary was right at the heart of the Irish Revolution and the view was that Tipperary was as violent as any county, if not the most violent county in the country, and that it was Tipperary men who were now driving this resurgence in violence in Dublin and they considered it to be essentially no accident that these shootings could take place on the morning in which Tipperary organised a challenge match against Dublin. Yeah. So this is this is what they see as being the cover. So that order that I spoke about was issued from Dublin Castle permitting a raid for men in arms in Croke Park. And the loose plan that they devised was to approach Croke Park from three different directions. And these directions will all be familiar to anybody who goes to Croke Park. The first was to come down Russell Street, which is basically you come down past the modern Gills pub and Russell Street is what joins uh, the North Circular Road to Jones's Road. So you basically walk down to that bridge on the, on the join of Russell Street and, and uh, Jones's Road. And that was the first way they came down. So that force that came here was a combination of RIC men on a black and tans commanded by Major E.L. Mills. And they were basically to take control of one of the exits to the ground, which was there at the corner of the canal end. The second group of men was a section of soldiers who comprised the Duke of Wellington's regiment commanded by Lieutenant uh, Robert Bray. And they took position at the railway end exit, basically at the opposite end of Jones's Road down at Clonroe, Clonroe, 
Clonliffe Road corner, basically behind what is the modern Nally Terrace. And then a third group of men saw more soldiers from the Duke of Wellington's regiment take position behind Hill 60, which is what Hill 16 was then known as. And they were going to block that gate that connected Croke Park with St. James's Avenue. So they were the three entrances and exits to Croke Park, to the old Croke Park uh, that was there. And in theory, all gates into Croke Park were now closed off and everyone in the ground could be searched as they left. That's the theory. Yeah, that's obviously, that's not what happened in practice. No, it's not what happened in practice. And what happened instead of a search, uh, a stop and search operation was the murder of innocent men, women and children. Uh, as the members of the RIC and the Black and Tans reached the bridge on Jones's Road, several of their number began firing guns. The old Croke Park of 100 years ago was was much different than the one of today. There was, for example, a row of red brick houses running along Jones's Road between that road and what we now know as the Hogan Stand. And there was also a high wall around the ground and a couple of trees around the canal end entrance. It was across that wall and into the trees that the first shots were fired from the bridge. Uh, Jerome O'Leary, who was a 10-year-old boy, was killed by a bullet that went through his head while he was sitting on the wall. And William Robinson, an 11-year-old, was sitting in one of the trees. And both of these children were killed instantly by the bullets which, 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 which went into them. A third child, uh, Billy Scott, was killed down, or they may not have been killed in an innocent instantly, I should say that. Uh, it looks like O'Leary, Jamer, John O'Leary were killed instantly. William Robinson may have, may have held on for a while, but ultimately could not be saved. A third child, Billy Scott, was killed down at the rail, down the end from a, from a, from a, from a ricocheting bullet. And police, basically, it's, 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 it is an incredible thing to say but police and black and tans came into the ground and then kept firing. So they'd fired the first shots from the bridge and Jones's Road, Russell Street, join, killed a couple of kids and came into the ground firing. And all around there was bedlam. The people running from cover for cover, people diving on the ground, people transfixed by fear. Gunfire came from different corners. It echoed around the pitch. There were bullets ricocheting. There was a stampede, a crush. People lying injured or dying across the ground. Tom Hogan and James Matthews, two spectators, were shot as they tried to run. Mick Hogan was shot as he crawled off the field down at the Hill 60 end. As Jack Shoulders noticed, it was among the supporters on the Ballybox side of the ground, that is basically the location of the modern Cusack, that the greatest mayhem was, was manifest. He said it was here that the spectators were murdered in cold blood, and to use his words. Hundreds were wounded or injured in the mad scramble, he said, that followed, trampled or torn with barbed wire in the walls. It was in this escape, this push to get away. Jane Boyle, the, the woman who died on the day, was shot and then crushed. James Tehan and James Burke were crushed to death as they ran from cover. And at the other side of the ground, people were trying to jump into safety in gardens. They were trying to take refuge in houses. And a man called Daniel Carroll was shot in the leg as he escaped down Jones's Road and died from his wounds later. But thousands remained tra- trapped in the ground, Larry. This is what this is. This went on. This was the shooting was over in a couple of minutes. But yeah, so the, and the, many, the, many of these people were still in the ground. A few, a few made their way out. Well, this, well, this is it. And Jack Childers told it very well from his his vantage point in under what became known as the Hogan Stand. And he came out and he said there were armed forces all around when he went out onto the pitch. They were perched up in the old stand on the railway walls and on any position overlooking them. He said there were rifles and machine guns trained on us. The commands rung out, pull up your hands and keep them up. The searching went on for an hour or more, he said. And then, having been searched, the spectators did file out the gate and along Jones's road. And Sholisto was detained for a while. Um, 
uh, before he was himself let go. Now, we will come back in a minute to the, I suppose, to the various inquiries and the cover-ups and the false statements issued by the government in the wake of Bloody Sunday. I think it's enough to say for now, though, that there were a couple of essential facts were discernible. The first is that the events of the morning were a response to, or events of the afternoon were a response to those of the morning. Those who led the raid on Croke Park, undertaken by members of the British Army and the police, were looking for men who they believed were responsible for what happened in the morning. That's not to, in any way to justify it or to say anything about it. It's just to, to put it in context. The second thing, the second fact that's inescapable is that the British forces who raided Croke Park were out of control. For all that there were people who might have been seeking those responsible for the events of the morning, there were others who were clearly bent on exacting some form of revenge. And all the convincing evidence is that they shot first and that no shots were at any point fired in return and that what ensued was a couple of minutes of wanton carnage. It wasn't a gunfight. Yeah. It was gunshots fired into a crowd. We might and come back says, to that in a minute, actually. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, we should, we should. It says much that without... Within that carnage, there was enough time for 50 rounds of ammunition to be discharged from a machine gun situated at what ultimately became known as the Hill 16 end of the ground and that a further 228 rounds of ammunition yeah. were fired from smaller weapons in other positions. These were the actions of a military force that was beyond reason. Now, one of, I think one of the great challenges of history, and we come up against this all the time, is to assess why people behave as they do. And in such assessment, there is always speculation. Was it fear or lust for revenge or some other motivation that brought men to fire guns, basically, at a crowd at a football match? Perhaps it was a combination of all of those emotions wrapped in together and un un unable to be separated from each other. But either way, what is abundantly clear is the, the, the upshot was brutal. Paul, I mean, the story of Michael Hogan, the, the tip footballer who died in the pitch, is, is, is pretty well known by, by most people. Um, you mentioned Daniel Carroll from my own place at home in Temple Area, Republican in Dublin um, at the time, who just decided late in the day to go down to a match and uh, was shot in the leg and, and died from his wounds later. Maybe tell us about, tell us about uh, a few of the other people who died. I suppose I mentioned the, 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 the kids already, but there's two really, in, I'll give you two really interesting cases. Patrick O'Dowd, he was 57. This is kind of that classic type of person who would go on a Sunday afternoon yeah. in a city like Dublin's it's just uh, Dublin Sunday afternoon everything's shut you know everything is shut it's, it's a really there's not uh, by, by the middle of the afternoon there's holy hour there's everything's going on like, what hmm. do you do and the football match in the middle of war even I, if the city isn't a, discernibly at war it's something to do and you're saying you know, it wasn't discernibly at war. Guys were making the call, looked to go down. I mean, I mean, Daniel Carr went down to open the pub, I think, and he decided later on, you know, I might, I might go down to the match. You know, it wasn't a big, you, you weren't, you didn't expect to be taking your life in your hands walking down to a match at that time in Dublin. That's, that's this, this is exactly it. And, like, and so, and you know, like, there's one thing about, you know, Dub Dublin teams playing in Croke Park have always attracted a kind of a walk-up crowd from people who are in the area who come and see them. And like, yeah, look at these guys sure. here. So we'll, we'll pick two of them. Patrick O'Dowd, he was 57, an ordinary working class man from a collection of kind of those labourers and the barman who you mentioned, Daniel Carroll, mechanics, la laundry owners, butchers, butchers, charge hands who were killed on the day. And O'Dowd was murdered as he was helping people to get over the old wall that once stood as a dividing line between what is now Crow Park or what is now the Cusick stand behind the Cusick stand and the former Belvedere College sports grounds, which used to be there. And like he was he was he was just shot as he did that. 
murdered. And on the day he was buried, the mourners were led by his son and his daughter Mary and the men he worked with at Clark's Builders in Fairview and they, they walked behind the cortege to, to, to his burial place. Another one, Michael, Michael Fuser. Michael Fuser, really interesting story. And it's, it's, it's in the story of Michael Fuser, you can see some of the tangles of, uh, of history. He was a labourer himself and he lived on Buckingham Street, which I suppose in the, they're part of the tenements of the North Inner City of Dublin. And he actually managed to escape from Croke Park and he made it as far as the Canal Bridge, but he was bleeding really badly from a thigh wound he was brought into a house in Russell Street, but he died in that house before being brought to a morgue. And his body lay unclaimed in that morgue for, for five days. Ultimately, he was identified by, actually identified by a British army officer. And that officer noted the number of teeth were missing. And it was clear that he was badly malnourished. And what was interesting about Fury as well, though, is that Fury, Michael Fury was wearing old army fatigues and worn down army boots. And so he was an unemployed man who was really struggling, trying to pick up casual work as a labourer. But like many GA players and supporters, he had actually fought for the British Army back in the Great War. So it is, the, the, the irony is not the right word here, but the tangles of history yeah. can reveal themselves in so many different ways. And here's another one of them. Um, Paul, we, we might talk in a minute about some of the inquiries into the into the killings and, and I suppose the, the, covers, the cover-ups. Um, Maybe first, tell us what happened that night. Oh, the killing wasn't done. That's the first thing to say. The killing the killing of the morning that became the killing of the afternoon became then the killing of the nighttime. And this is this, this was brutal what happened. Um, at, Dublin Clark, there were, at Dublin Castle, there were two veterans of the 1916 rising, uh, McKee and Clancy, who were being held there. Actually, McKee Barracks and Clancy Barracks, people will know them from from uh, from 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 army barracks in Dublin, they were called out for these men, but they they were arrested on the Saturday night, the night before the game, and they were held with a a man called Connor Clune, who was a co-op manager from uh, from County Clare, who had no connection with the IRA or with politics. More generally, now there are contested versions of what happened on the Sunday night. The single most important agreed fact is that Clune, McKee, and Clancy were shot dead at around 11 p.m. The claim from Dublin Castle is that the three men were shot trying to escape. Now, this is an explanation explanation that it was derided by Republicans and generally derided by anyone who looks at it. It just, it, it feels fantastical. And um, the belief instead is that the three were, were simply summarily executed and was instead, is instead further evidence of the descent into tyranny of British rule in, in into greater tyranny of British rule in Ireland. And as Mark... Duncan has written, though, for the Dublin IRA, the loss of McKee and Clancy was also significant. Um, one of the one other IRA man commented uh, afterwards, it, it it knocked all the good out of it for us. Um, so then, what 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 inquiries took place? I mean, obviously there was there must have been outrage. Oh, there was outrage, Larry. Absolute outrage after the game. Outrage in the city. Outrage in the national press. Outrage in the country. Outrage in sections of the British press. Outrage in the international coverage of what had happened. The New York Times had it. Uh, it was. It was. This is everywhere. This That's is interesting, actually. But yeah, so it was. It was well beyond Ireland. The outrage. Oh, this. This was an international event. Now it was. It was reported always, and the reports were clear cut. By the way. Um, members of the British security forces had fired indiscriminately into a crowd at a football match and killed people. This was an undeniable fact. But in the days after the massacre, a cover-up was already underway. By Tuesday, Sir Hammer Greenwood, that is the Chief Secretary of Ireland, basically the most important British official 
in Ireland, the man, the, the British government representative in the country, told the House of Commons that the first shots had come from inside the ground. Right. That 30 revolvers had been found in the ground afterwards, that the shots fired in the ground had caused a stampede, and that in that stampede, people had lost their lives. More than that, the British forces had opened fire only then because they were being fired on by gunmen who were running in escape from the place. And finally, he said that he deeply regretted the loss of innocent life, but that this loss of life was entirely the responsibility of the Irish gunmen. Now, as cover up goes and as, you know, as behavior or of statements it is incredibly revealing and utterly divorced from all truth. Yeah. And in the way of these things, Conservative newspapers in Britain took this story and ran it more or less as truth. Other papers, though, such as The Guardian, then called the Mon Manchester Guardian, regarded it as nonsense. While GA officials, of course, condemned it as ridiculous. And eyewitness after eyewitness gave testimony that defied, that basically derided, again, the official version of events and portrayed it as a complete and utter invention. Um, now, as November turned into December of that 1920, the British Labour Party actually sent a commission over to investigate what had happened. And the report of that commission found no evidence that the police had been fired on from inside the ground or outside it and condemned instead what it called the calculated brutality and lack of self-control of members of that same police force. But for the next 67 years, further evidence collected by the military and through courts of inquiry were kept from the public um, until 1999, that is. The historian David Leeson revealed in 1999, the public record office, as he said himself in London, released three documents, crucial documents to understanding what happened on that day. The first was a report submitted by Major E.L. Mills, who'd been in charge of that contingent coming down to run the day after Bloody Sunday. Mills gave particular type of evidence. The second was a military court of inquiry assembled at the Matter Hospital. And the third was a further military court of inquiry at Jervis Street Hospital. Now, there was no need here, I think, to re rehearse the full details of those three sources of evidence, except to say that in the round, they demonstrate that the official version of events was a nonsense. For example, Major Mills wrote that no arms had been found on the ground or in any searches of any people leaving the ground. And the military courts of inquiry make clear that there was also no gun battle. Instead, what there is, is piece after piece after piece of testimony that sets out how an out of control military and police force fired indiscriminately into a crowd at a football match, causing the death of 14 innocent people. And Paul, is that the accepted conclusion by the, by the British government? Look, I presume you're not taught this in history in, in, in school in, in England. But is, is this the accepted version of history in, in, in England now? In there is no version of this history in England. This is something that is a mere footnote in the story of the War of Independence, in the story of empire, in the story of the actions of the British military around the world. It certainly wouldn't have a presence in the popular mind in the same way that would say, for example, the Bloody Sunday in Derry would have. It is not something that has endured yeah. in, 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 in the memory. It was part of a war of independence, which really is not particularly well taught or taught at all in many British secondary schools. It is not part of popular discourse. It simply doesn't matter. Um, in terms of what historians think, um, there is a historian, Charles Townsend, who wrote that the British version of events was not the most, not the least plausible, but 
I'm not too sure that that's a sustainable point of view. In fact, look, let's be clear about it. It's not a sustainable point of view. There are two plausible event versions of events. The first shots came from inside the ground or the first shots came from outside the ground. And all the evidence suggests they came from outside the ground. And that sure. is the generally accepted um, historical verdict that was, insofar as historians can agree on anything, it would, broadly speaking, that would be agreed. So what, what, was the, what was the historical legacy of the day, I suppose? I suppose the legacy of it is, is, is several fold. First of all, it demonstrated with absolute clarity the poverty, the brutality of the British regime in, in, in Ireland. Number two, it became part of the national, the story of the revolution and basically the story of the lives of those who died was essentially left to one side and fitted into the narrative of things until the Graves Project, like McFoley and others have taken on in, in in recent years, and McFoley's brilliant book, uh, published on on this, has given this, and the, then the documentaries that Mick was involved in, that RTE produced with Colin McCallan as a, a executive, Michael Moynihan, and those people who were involved in in a documentary, kind of put the stories of those who died on the day yeah. back into the centre of the narrative. But the reality of it is that for long for a long time, it was something that was almost um, it fitted a kind of an invention of a history of the GEA that it put together by itself that it was intimately bound in with the nationalist struggle and you see that that breaks down there was no GEA involvement in, in, in 1916 in the way that it was claimed and afterwards there was a, an increasing engagement relationship between the GEA and the war of, and the IRA during the war of independence so the GEA got bound more tightly in it and this was this was the, the the kind of the touchstone for this. But when it comes down to it, a kind of a cartoon history of goodies and baddies was created, not about this event, but in general around the history of, of the Irish Revolution, which kind of destroyed all nuance and complexity. And that really doesn't help you understand things, understand why things happened, understand how things happened. And really, really, when it comes down to it, the great... And I mean great in the sense of, of the largest, most significant legacy of that day was in the lives of those who were bereaved, the lives of those who lost sons and daughters or sons and, and a daughter or a fiance or a husband or a wife or a parent on that day and what it did to those families and the legacy that that carried. And really, that's where you find the true meaning of war. And what happens on a day like this? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 